You may be seated. So, question for you, and maybe this question is familiar uh, from growing up. Uh, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Anybody a Mr. Rogers fan here? Oh yeah, a few of us were raised on Mr. Rogers. Feels like he's had a kind of a big resurgence recently. A couple of documentaries that are out there, right? There's been a lot of talk about Mr. Rogers looking deeply into his life and the way he reflected some of his character and values. Mr. Rogers, Presbyterian minister, uh, was helping kids deal with their emotions in godly ways and packaging it in such a way that they were very practical, right? There was this song, What Do You Do With The Mad You Feel? I won't sing anymore. Um, you can go look it up on YouTube though. One of them's a little creepy, so they'll use the second link and not the first one. Um, but Mr. Rogers asked that question because that's a very real thing, right? We feel mad. So I'll ask you again, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Um, I was talking to a friend recently. Uh, they were doing a podcast about Mr. Rogers. And part of it, they were kind of taking in some questions and conversations through it. And they asked that question, what do you do with your anger? What do you do with the mad that you feel? And one of the responses uh, was really profound and kind of helped build a framework for a lot of how we're looking um, through today. And they said, what do you do with the mad that you feel? You give it a job. You you give it a job. Uh, But what job that you give your anger matters so much and has everything to do with what we're talking about in this series. In this series, we've been looking at how the things we do as well as the things that we leave undone have an impact on God's kingdom. Uh, The impact that Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer, the one that many of us know or that we recite from time to time, this prayer that Jesus modeled for us that Um, your kingdom come on earth here as it is in heaven, that there would be an unfolding of his reign, of his power, of his change, of his order, of his justice to come now, as well as it will throughout eternity. It matters how we live these things out to the day-to-day reality that we live in. And we talked about in this series, and we've talked about it actually a lot last year, uh, that we can't stop the kingdom from coming. Uh, that God is bringing his kingdom. That when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom has come, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is coming. He laid out this idea that it is starting, it's unfolding, and we cannot stop it. It will happen. But we do have these opportunities to either lean into it and help it coming, or we can hinder it, especially in the localized world that's around us. The things that we do and the things that we leave undone matter greatly in how it then gets lived out. And it matters how the people, especially those very near to us, experience that kingdom. And how we deal with anger and how we think about anger impacts us. Um, So today, as we continue to look at this kingdom series through virtues and vices that we participate in, we're going to be looking at wrath. But first, we have to look at what comes before wrath, and that's anger. And uh, I have found that helpful to have definitions that we hang on to these. So here's a, a definition I felt has been helpful for anger. Anger is simply a response to real or perceived injustice. Anger is simply a response to a real or perceived injustice. And this comes from who you and I were made to be. Uh, you and I were made in the image of God. Back in the very beginning, it says we're created in God's image, that he has put part of himself in us, that we reflect his image throughout creation, that he puts in us the things that he cares about, that they care about, that we have that deep in us. And God is a God of justice. He is a God of setting things right. He's a God of fixing things that are broken in this world. Like it says in the rest of the Bible, right? I mean, from the first page on, it's this picture of God trying to restore order and justice of bringing his people back, of creating a way of living that would reflect him. And it makes sense that we want to see justice lived out in front of us and and around us and through us. So if we hear some of these statistics, um, I just pulled up just a handful, just uh, just fairly recent numbers uh, that if you hear that one in three children in sub-Saharan Africa are undernourished, Or maybe you hear that there's 153 million orphans in the world. 
are that there are more than 40 million people enslaved in the world, more than in any other time in human history, and that how somehow that generates $150 billion a year. Or maybe you um, here locally, maybe that stirs you a bit more, that Orlando ranks dead last among major cities in median income, uh, meaning people that work day-to-day, work really, really hard and can't make ends meet. They, they can't even provide for the basic necessities of life that we rank dead last in a very well-developed country. And that one in five kids just around us, just in, our, in your neighborhood, um, have some sort of food insecurity. If you can hear those and you don't feel some sense of anger, uh, if there's, you don't have some sort of sense of injustice, that doesn't mean that you're maybe doing it, but if you don't have some tingling of, man, there's something wrong, uh, then there's probably something wrong with how you value people, right? Have, how we see people, of how we see order in the world. Uh, when we hear those things, it's okay. We should, we should get upset. There, there should be something in us that says, man, things are not right. And, and I mean, it should basically, anytime we flip on social media, the news, anywhere we get our stuff and we see things that are happening that will set that radar off, right? Something is not right. There is brokenness in the world around us. There is injustice. And, and I think all of us are wired differently and, and which ones of those might hit us most closely because maybe it's two feet away from us, right? And maybe it's in our next door neighbors. There's some sense of order in that. And, and, and there is some part of us where we desire that people to, should be cared for and heard because we are wired in the image of God and God cares deeply for his creation and for his people. And, and a verse that we come back quite frequently to is Micah 6, 8, where God says that we're to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. To act justly and to love mercy. And so we should never try to turn off the holy emotion of anger uh, when the image of God is marred in our world or in the lives of others. But Dante calls wrath a love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. Wrath is a love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. It takes the next step out of anger. And this can happen on on your social media. It can happen in your office at work or in your living room at home. But, But how does it happen? How do we move in that direction? How does this good desire for justice become wrongly pursued? Um... I think to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning, right? We're created beings, but we're broken by sin. We're marred by this brokenness in the world from the very beginning. Um, at the beginning, right, everything was created perfect. The Garden of Eden, God set up this perfect order. And if we would just, if we would just stay with him and trust him, everything would work. But of course, what happens, page one, the Bible, we trust ourselves. We become our own gods. We think we know more than him. And for the rest of time, it's marred. And that sin pattern continues there as we continue to try to live our own lives, and so we're created beings broken by sin. We have an irresistible proclivity towards these vices, but at the beginning, we were really created for these virtues. And it's been said that every sin is the wrong response to a God-given desire or need, and that'll be one of these hinges that we come back to throughout this series, that every sin, every vice at its heart is a tantalizing but insufficient alternative to a God-given desire when we started, we mentioned that sloth uh, is the insufficient response to our body's need for rest and recreation and restorative order. That greed in these last couple of weeks is an insufficient response to our need for security. We're wired for that, but it's a security that can only come through Christ and can only be expressed through generosity as a cure for it. And the need that we're addressing this week is that we have a deep down in the very core of our being need for justice. We want to see justice in the world. We want to see order in the world. We want to see things set right. But wrath, wrath, this vice that we talked about this week is an unhealthy passion for justice, ultimately not for others, 
but for ourselves. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll take a moment to dig into that because this is one of those fun times when you get to work on these kind of sermons, you get to learn more and more about yourself, right? And so as I've learned more and more about myself, as I've taken tests or whatever throughout time, I, I realize I really like order. I really like things to be in their place. I like label makers. Um, maybe if there's any of you others that are sick like that. Um, but I also like justice, right? I like natural consequences. I like when things, when people are rewarded for doing good things. I like when uh, the natural consequences of things that there are, uh, that they happen and they point people back towards God and grace. And, and, and when you hear that, that probably, when you think about it, it's like, well, that's, that's probably... Um, that's probably a good thing. And there is a lot of good in that, right? And order and justice. But what I've learned that sitting beneath that, at least for me, is a pretty angry side. Um, and, and it's a side that I've learned to cover up with humor or turning it off and maybe just pretending I don't care, right? But underneath is a pretty good wiring for anger because when you see things that are out of order or things that aren't just or things that are not working, there is a, an anger layer that's there. And like I said, I often will bury it, but it's there. And, and in my less healthy seasons, another thing that's been helpful for me to monitor is kind of where health is, right? Because you see how they tend to be lived out. In my less healthy seasons, at best, those bursts of anger are embarrassing. And at worst, they hurt relationships, right? Especially with those closest and who I love. And, and I have found that I can get upset at the most trivial things not being right. I've... Um, Really fun exercise. I've been keeping a list as I've been working on this of things that trigger my anger. Um, I'll share a little bit more about that list later, but I just picked a few choice selections to share with you in front of everyone this week. Um, so welcome to my world. Um, and these are going to be ridiculous. Number one for my anger list, a scooter, a Razor scooter was not placed back in its parking space. Um, my children have Razor scooters and I built a very beautiful scooter parking lot out of old two by fours. Thank you, Pinterest. Um, and it's very easy. You place the scooter into the narrow slot and it holds the scooter up so that they're not like in the middle of the floor when I walk into the garage in the middle of the night and step on it, right? Um, rarely, rarely do the scooters make it back into their spots. Put on the angry list, right? This one was a really fun one when I looked back at my anger journal. Um, there was a stool placed in the middle of the garage instead of seven feet to the left by my workbench where I asked it to go. Um, and you're saying, OJ, that, that really make you angry? I made my list. It got on my list. Because when I came home, I opened the garage door. And, you're, and yes, that's the door um, that has a motor on it because I'm too lazy to open it to hold all the stuff that I don't really need because I accumulate things, right? And the garage door opened. And there in the middle of the room was a stool that had come home. And I had asked, like, hey, could that go over by by the workbench when it came home, but instead it was in the middle of the garage. It seemed like a small thing to ask, right? Anger list, um, very ridiculous. Um, here was the one where I, when I looked back on my list, there were three empty Girl Scout cookie boxes. Um, now to be fair, they were there for several days in the middle of the garage. The other cookie boxes were full in the wagon where they belonged. You may notice there's a pattern emerging. One, that these are ridiculous. Yes, they are. Two, they're in the garage. And I may have mentioned in earlier sermons that sometimes I become a little bit more diligent about some things when other things are maybe going off the rails. I haven't been to the gym in a couple of weeks. I might be focusing a little bit too much on the garage. Um, but the garage is the first thing I see every morning, every day when I come home, right? It's, it's how I go in the house is how I leave. Um, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that those make my angry list. But my guess is every one of you is feeling a little bit of that or some other thing because I've heard uh, after the first service, everybody's like, yep, got that same list. I didn't write it down, but it's there. Um, 
And it's been interesting that I've really gotten to see this lived out in my little guy. Uh, Maverick is five. He's my little buddy. Um, he's like my little mini-me sometimes, right? And at five, you don't have a filter, right? Most of us have learned filters. We've learned some way to kind of um, um, cut things off before it's too late. But at five, you don't have that. And he gets angry. And I don't, I've asked my mom. I don't remember getting that angry, right? Because I have good, uh, bad memory. But um, uh, I see it. Because, and here's the thing. It, it, sometimes it's very hilarious, right? And almost cute. 99.9% of the time, his anger is because he didn't get something he wanted, right? And when I'm honest, that's me. I didn't get what I wanted. Things didn't go my way. And I get to see it lived out in front of me as like a mirror of who I really am. If I hadn't learned all those little layers and all those ways of dealing, right? There it is in full display. Thomas Aquinas, 13th century theologian said, anger is the ally of justice and courage but only if it follows a reasonable judgment of what is right. Anger is the ally of justice and courage, but only if it follows a reasonable judgment of what is right. It's not a reasonable judgment of what is right to feel like my kids need to value uh, the ordered garage the same way I do. And it's not an injustice that I need to move the trash can seven feet to the left. They are very much inconveniences, but inconvenience and injustice are not the same thing. Our, our anger goes wrong when our image of justice means things have to go our way and we personally take it upon ourselves to set them right. Because wrath is selfish like that, isn't it? It's selfish. And it leads to being angry at the wrong things and to the wrong extent and for the wrong amount of time. The wrong things, the wrong extent, and the wrong amount of time. Our anger goes wrong when we're angry at the wrong things. And this often looks like when we get angry at an intermediary, right? You're, you get angry at the customer service rep on the, when you're calling your insurance company because they have filed the claim wrong for the seventh time and you know you've talked to someone to fix it and you finally they just blow up at them because they're in the way of what's supposed to be right. Or maybe, maybe it's lashing out at your coworker because you know that their mistake is going to draw your boss's attention towards you. Or maybe it's in your classroom, right? Because one of your students is acting up and you get angry at them because you know the teacher's going to punish the whole class. Maybe it's blowing up at the kid that's right in front of you because of a conversation that happened six hours earlier at work and they're just easy to take it out on at the end of the day and it feels good to just get it out there, right? Your sense of justice can somehow become so internalized you somehow feel validated in letting anybody or anything around you just feel your wrath. Or maybe, maybe we just end up shaking our fists at God uh, because of the circumstances and the people around us uh, that are creating all of these things that are out of order. And in these cases, we usually have some wrong idea of what we deserve or the sort of treatment that we're due. And so we get angry at the wrong thing. We can also get angry to the wrong extent. Um, in some medieval writings, the word ira is used for anger. And that is anger rightly expressed. And furor, or where we get the word fury, is used to describe irrational or disproportionate anger. Um, even if we have a legitimate grievance, we can deal with it in destructive ways. Um, have you ever seen someone unleash and demean someone else on social media just because they took a different stance than them, right? And it just blows up and keeps going. Have you ever been that person on either end of that? Or have you ever become aware of an injustice in the world and just go after anyone else who doesn't see it the same way you do? Maybe you just found out about something and you're just looking for a fight, right? You're just looking for a way to do that rather than to bring hope and healing and kind of build that relationship more. Um, it's interesting. There's around a dozen scriptures, most in the Proverbs, giving guidance on anger. Uh, but none of them actually deal with the object of anger. They deal with how to rightly express anger. And one of the ones that really has stuck with me this week was Proverbs 29, 11. It says, a fool 
gives full vent to their anger, but the wise holds it in check. A fool gives full vent to their anger, but the wise holds it in check. Otherwise, a holy emotion of anger can become the harmful vice of wrath. And we can get angry at the wrong things to the right extent, but we can also get angry for the wrong amount of time. And this one probably tears at the fabric of love more than any of the other ones, because this is the one that can lead to resentment instead of reconciliation with people around, right? It's anger that says, I don't want to talk about it. Deep down, you really do, right? Or um, I'm fine, but you're really not. Or I don't care, but you do. And it just sort of seeds under the surface, right? And this thing that starts so small and then takes on a life of its own and that boulder keeps going and going. And all of a sudden one day you realize you haven't talked to that family member or friend in six months because of something that started so small, but it has just built into this unhealthy thing. One author said it like this. When resentment smolders beneath the surface, we go through the day like a snake poised to strike at the first sign of movement. We become quick-tempered. And our anger at the present moment swells to the size of the whole of history of harm done. Our history or our anger might start with something uh, that is legitimately wrong. But when we place our ideas or our comfort or our way at the center of the definition of justice, it will likely lead to some combination of anger at the wrong things or to the wrong extent or for the wrong amount of time. I'm not angry at my kids because they're kids, right? I mean, it just comes out. I'm angry because things aren't the way that I want them to be. And the people around me aren't valuing the things that I value. And then they become a place to deposit an often unhealthy sense of anger from a lack of control early on. That's why James chapter one, verse 20 says this, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Our anger, human anger, doesn't produce God's righteousness. If we're at the center we don't do much to reflect God's heart. It's why this is uh, Paul ends up placing sin or, or, or anger on his list of sins later on in Galatians and Colossians because our human version of it often turns into wrath. It often turns into the unhealthy part of it because anger gone wrong is what makes wrath feels like the vice that we deserve. Um, it's also in the words, I love this quote of Frederick Buechner, Buechner, sorry, he says, this is the most fun vice, that wrath is the most fun vice, right? You think about it, there's times when you've blown up and it's so cathartic, right? Because it does. And there's so many of these vices that feel good in the moment, but the repercussions, the wake that it leaves in its path, especially in relationships, are so damaging. We've been wronged and we see wrong and we get to be the justice to whatever extent that we see fit. And anger gone wrong has us playing God and um, I feel like if there's anything I've learned uh, over time, it's I'm not very good at being God. I feel like if that's the thing that God opens my eyes to, it's the number of times I try to do that, whether intentionally or not, and I'm not good at it. And one of the things, one of the illustrations that we've, I've heard at camps through years, and I think it's been helpful when we talk about this idea of sin. Sin is the things that separates from God. They're, they're the things that separate us from God, from each other, from our truest created beings. And sin is that three-letter word, right, S-I-N. And oftentimes, they'll say that the I in the middle of sin is us, right? It puts us in the middle of it. It has us becoming God, us taking God's place and being able to met out justice and wrath in whatever ways that we see fit. And we are not created to do that. Uh, Gary Abbott, who's our, our Waterford campus pastor and started the Lake Mary campus, uh, just turned 40 recently, and he's been doing sort of an exercise where he asked um, some people that are a little bit farther along, hey, if you had some advice to give your 40-year-old self, 
uh, what, would you, what would you tell yourself? If you could sit across the table, uh, what would you tell yourself at 40? And he said he got a lot of good answers, a lot of funny stuff, a lot of really helpful stuff. But the one across like, about 15 different people he asked that was consistent across all of them was some version of don't let anger get the best of you. That as they were looking back 10 or 20 years down the front line, they, kept, they would have told themselves, don't let anger get the best of you. And he said that his father-in-law actually said it the best. His father-in-law says, first of all, don't sweat the little things in life. And almost everything is little, but some things aren't. Loving God, loving others, those aren't little. Each of them, uh, when giving wisdom, wisdom they had, that they had learned, they said that anger, something you should pay attention to and have fall in line with the heart of God, that anger is a helpful radar. We have all of these senses, right? God's given us senses and anger and, and emotions and feelings and their radars that attune us to the things going on. But so often they get out of whack, out of time, where we suppress them or over pay attention to them. And if we don't rein it in, if we don't learn how to use it well, it can lead to all kinds of heartache and trouble for us and as well as those that are around us. So if we want our anger to fall in line with the heart of God, uh, we should know what does God get angry about? And then what does he do with that anger? Because again, we're talking about reflecting the character of God for the sake of others. So we can trace this from the giving of the law in the Old Testament through the prophets and to the coming of Jesus. And when God's people give themselves to idolatry, putting anything else above God, or a lack of mercy, God's anger gets triggered. So simply put, when people disobey his command to love God above all else, and when he tells them, don't build your life on anything less, don't let money or family or status or anything else be your guide, God, let God be, it. or an and, when they disobey his command to love your neighbor as yourself, it arouses God's anger. And you see that pattern throughout the Old Testament into the New, at his people, at the, at there's things. Instead of a different way, and in a way that maybe um, is a more applicable to where we are in some ways, it says, when my self-love edges out my love for God and my love for the people he's given me to care for, I can expect the love of God and justice to be angry about it. Now, before I lose you, because I know not all of you have the same view of God, right? We bring in all kinds of things into our view of God, our relationships with our dads or lack thereof or, or how we viewed God in the past. Before I lose you in the midst of that, because I think it's really important to know, God is not angry at you. God is angered at the sin patterns in our life and he is a holy God, but he's not angry at you. In fact, uh, he loves you deeply. He loves you enough to send his son, right? God, he, he had every right to send justice, vengeance, whatever. He was perfect, but he sent his son, a perfect sacrifice for our life, a perfect way that, that we could be in right relation with him on a rescue mission to save us and not to take it out on us. So I think it would be helpful for us to look at what God does with his anger. Today, we're gonna to be looking at Mark chapter three, verses one through six. Uh, if you wanna follow along your Bibles, your phone, or on the back of your bulletins there, Mark chapter three, one through six, where we get to uh, see Jesus, who is God incarnate, the God with skin on. We get to see how does God live out his life in, in our world. And so we see this story here in Mark three. It says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. 
Jesus shows up on the most important day of the week, right? He's in this church gathering in the synagogue and he disrupts everything that's going on. And the conversation between Jesus and the church people essentially centers on some of the rules and the regulations around the Sabbath. What can you do? What can you not do uh, on this day that's centered around God? We talked about Sabbath a few weeks ago. And so there was a lot of discussion around this and they wanted to know what to do. But beneath kind of the subtext to a lot of the conversation that was happening, it was really about the core of loving God and his people. Um, the Gospel of Mark, it's one of the Gospels I, I recommend. If you are new, if you've never read the Bible, it is a great one to start in. It's action-packed. Mark doesn't waste a lot of words. You get a lot of Jesus and a lot of story in a tight package. Mark moves from one thing to the next. So if you, I, I love John because John kind of brings out a lot of conversation and he, he really digs into some beautiful places. And Mark stays pretty compact in it. Yet in this story, he takes time to give a whole verse to talk about Jesus' feelings. And here's what he says. Jesus was angry. The God was skin on, God incarnate was angry. It says he looked around them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So what does Jesus get angry about? He gets angry at the, about the people's lack of love for the man with the unusable hand who would have been pushed aside Due to his disability, there would have been a view that either he or his parents had did something wrong and he would not have had the full benefits of community, of love, of restoration into what was happening in God's kingdom there. And then Jesus says to the guy in front of everyone, come on up front. And he, he heals his hand. He brings him back in. The injustice was that this man in that time would have been allowed to experience the fullness of everything that was happening. And Jesus saw that and it broke him in. And the people that were gathered there had forgotten, at least in this particular instance, about the restoration that God's kingdom brings. That God's hope throughout time had been for restoration to him. It had always been about bringing them back. And Jesus gets angry because he loves this man. He sees him as his creation. All of them were his creation. He sees this man, the outsider that was made in his image. And he sees that the church people do not or at least they didn't love him as much as they loved their rules and their order, their idea of what was right and wrong, maybe their comfort in how they were living, uh, their way of doing things. They, they didn't love him as much as they loved themselves, and it resulted in injustice. But he was also angry and disturbed, and I love this because he loves the church people. He loves the Pharisees. They often get such a bad rap right there at the other end of Jesus' rebuke so often, but he, <laughs> He's speaking to them as much as he talks to us as a church. You, he, I feel like so much, like you get it. You have the power, you have the knowledge. If you would just understand what I'm inviting you into, you could change the world. I feel like he tells us that every week as a church, right? If we just would get it, if we just fully understand, you could be in the middle of this life-changing thing that I'm bringing into the world. And he's disturbed by their hardness of heart. He's disturbed because uh, they let this discussion take center stage instead of this man so what does Jesus do with his anger? He lets it take him to the right place. He gives it a job. Uh, Jim Keller, uh, he's one of our teachers here and, and um, a counselor here in the area, said something that was so simple, but it's been so profound for me that it's been really helpful. He said, anger is a very helpful transitional emotion, but it's a terrible destination. Anger is a helpful transition emotion, but it's a terrible destination. You see, Jesus' anger moves him. And it moves him to the right place. Jesus doesn't lash out with words. He doesn't retaliate and do harm. He doesn't let his anger turn to wrath, but he also doesn't back down from the situation. He simply loves. 
He counters their stubborn refusal to do justice and love mercy with a picture of God's love and mercy. Um, I find it interesting in there that it doesn't say that he healed his hands, he restores it. There's this picture of restoration, of bringing back into what should have been, restoring to what was already there. Um, healing's beautiful, restoration. There's something that is just magnificent when you think about restoring and that it was what God is doing. Jesus is angry at the right thing to the right extent and it moves him to the right action. You see, when anger, when it is a holy emotion, has justice as its object and love as its root. Anger, when it is a holy emotion, has justice as its object and love as its root. It takes no intellect or goodness of soul or pursuit of holiness to start swinging words or fists at who hurt us and hurt others. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. When we experience wrong, when we see wrong, we should first seek the God of justice before we can hope to bring justice. If at any moment, um, in any given situation, we can't say the words of Paul in Romans 12, that in view of God's mercy, I'm going to present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, and that is my proper act of worship. If we can't say that, it's possible that we may have too narrow of a view of justice and have forgotten about grace completely. And the natural result of the narrow view of justice is that the holy emotion of anger can become the harmful passion of wrath. It may be that what we're mad about and to the extent where we're mad about it actually keeps us from the type of anger that is God-honoring. When we uh, stay angry all the time at messy garages or people on Twitter reacting differently than you or politicians with different views of us or the guy that keeps us and cuts us off in traffic on the way to church or the line that's too long at Publix or the bad Wi-Fi or the slow internet, if we stay angry all the time, our radar gets messed up. And we can't have the right attuned radar to God's sense of injustice. We don't know what to be angry about all the time. These feelings were given to us in the proper way. God created us. He created us with the ability to be angry and the right to be angry at the things he's angry about. But so often we either deaden them by ignoring them or or heightening them so much that we can no longer experience them. And what we often leave undone in our anger is reflection, and we can miss the injustices that are happening that we should be angry about. We often don't take the time to reflect on whether or not what we are mad about and to what extent we're mad about it is in line with the actual heart of God, in line with reflecting his character and loving others. So what do I do if my anger, right? If I'm supposed to have it, if it's an emotion that's been given to me, and what do I do with it? If I, if I want to be in line with the character of God, and if I don't want it to, my anger to go wrong, and I think Psalm 4.4 holds the answer to that. And, and it may be a surprising one. It, it isn't don't get angry. The, the solution isn't just don't get angry, because turning off our emotions, not paying attention to how we're wired, uh, that can take us down a really bad road. That can cut us off our soul. It can cut off a huge part of who we are. It's not the answer. It can send us into a lot of other vices and a lot of other hurts that are there. Because I want to be angry about the things that Jesus is angry about. And I want that to lead me to love as he loved, right? So Paul in his letter of Ephesians in chapter four, verse 26 says this, in your anger, do not sin, but he borrowed this from Psalm 4.4. And here's what Psalm 4.4 says. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. It says, take time to reflect. When you get to the end of each day, things are quiet, search your heart and, and reflect. 
Might be that when we see, read Mark 3, we read the story about the man who had the shriveled hand and the injustice that he's facing and see how people treated the man. It might be that we easily see the injustice, but where are we people that lack love, right? Where are we people that don't allow our love for God to translate into love for others? Where do we feel satisfied just staying angry, but don't let that motivate us to restore relationships with and for others? Because here's the thing, this needs to matter for this afternoon and Monday and Tuesday. This shouldn't, especially in this Virtues and Vices series, as we continue to try to live out God's character in the world, shouldn't matter just for the hour we're together. This should impact our lives throughout the week because it matters to the people that we love. So here's my suggestion. It's to follow Jesus and take the advice of Psalm 4. I'm gonna throw that back up there to avoid wrath. For one week, keep a journal or a note on your phone and record every time you're angry and what you're angry about. Keep a journal. That's when I talked about that list that I had a little bit earlier, my anger journal. It's a really fun one if you want a fun read sometime. Um, but start to keep a record of it. When you notice those things, write it down. And if you find that you need to write a whole paragraph to justify your anger, that might be your leading indicator that this might not be to the right extent, right? But maybe it is. Maybe you're learning something about yourself. But then take that list and put it away for a week. Set it aside for a bit and then come back to it. And when you come back to it, Start laying it across those things. Look to see if there are things that you were too angry about in the moment. Look to see if you were angry at the wrong thing or the wrong person. And see if there are things that you've been angry about too long where the resentment is getting a hold on you. Uh, I think realistically, most of us have no idea what to do with our anger in the moment, right? Because we aren't Jesus. We, we, we are not perfect. We don't know what to do. He was able to live that out so perfectly in that story. We are not. So we need time to reflect. And over time, I really do believe that we can understand our motives and our motivations and our character, and we can identify the trajectory more quickly towards uh, where our anger is heading, and we can choose a better path, and we can line it up with God and to reflect him better. It's in many ways right now, it's right, a really bad cold and flu season. I feel like it's wiped through our house and everybody's, I know. And over time, maybe we learn to take coldies or uh, airborne a little earlier or some cool elderberry syrup, right, to try to lessen the effects and that's kind of the principle here is we learn to reflect as we learn to identify these things earlier on, we can learn to get anger to subside before it becomes this unhealthy wrath, passion of wrath. Because here's what's at stake, right? I um, mean, all of these things, it's not just the moment. Ultimately, what's at stake when our anger leads to wrath is it separates us. It separates us from those we ought to embrace and cherish. Uh, we are made in the image of God, but so is everyone else right? And our wrath and our anger can separate us from those people that God loves so much. Uh, we often say around here that sin is anything that separates us from God or, or from others, from who we are or from our very selves. And that's what wrath does. It's such a tangible expression of the brokenness inside. It's a very visible piece that separates us. That's what it does when wrath becomes this unhealthy passion. And when we start by putting ourselves at the center of the equation on we love our ideas or our comfort or our way to the point of calling anything other than our ideas or our comfort or our way injustice. And say, because of my definition of injustice, I have a right to revenge. In spite, that is anger getting the best of us. And it hurts us and it hurts others. And it may, and it probably will feel like temporary relief from pain, uh, but it isn't wise. So many of the vices we cover will feel like, and will give you a temporary relief but again, the wake that they leave behind them and the brokenness and relationship are there because wrath moves us away from people that we could potentially spend eternity with. And it doesn't bring any better picture of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And this has impact in the world outside of our doors, but it also has impact on the world inside of our doors as well, right? Uh, our command to love 
others doesn't start when we leave our house. It starts in our house. It starts with those closest to us. Maybe those are the hardest at times and it expands from there. So the message, the hope in this isn't don't be angry. That's not the takeaway. The message is to be angry about the right things to the right extent and for the right amount of time. You and I are we're wired for justice. So we shouldn't settle for giving our anger the job of wrath. So what do you do with the mad that you feel? All right, we'll go back to Fred Rogers' original question. What do you do with the mad that you feel? First, take time to reflect. Is my anger in line with who God is and who he's called us to be? And if it isn't, if you can identify it that quick, say sorry and move on. Don't be so overcome by the small things that you miss the important things you're supposed to fight for. Second, if my anger is in line with who God is and who he's called you to be, give it a job. But the job shouldn't be wrath. Justice perverted to revenge and spite. It should be love for God and the people who God loves. And as we do this, uh, let's invite Jesus to form and shape and transform us more into his image for the sake of others. Let's pray. Uh, God, you have high hopes for your people. Um, you have created us in your image with desires, with passion, with hope. You've created us with um, unbelievable opportunities to do good and to reflect your character and to bring light into the world, but also with the proclivity towards vices to, uh, as in our human form and our brokenness, to move towards the things that are so temporarily fixed the problem, but ultimately mar uh, the image that you've given us that can break relationships God, anger is one that is so close to many of us. And God, that wiring, that radar you've given us is for the injustices in the world. You hate that the world is broken. And you hate the things that affect those. And we so often settle for anger and wrath when really yeah, we're just not getting our way. So God, help us. Help us to reflect. Help us to listen to the words of the Psalms. Help us to look more and love more like you, to learn to be angry at the right things and for the right extent and to take the right actions, to give our anger the right job, that we would have your hearts. God, give us your eyes, give us your hearts. Help us to see the things that break your heart and move towards them and to love like you love. Lord, help us to be light in this world, Lord, and help it to start and be so practical in the next hours and days in our own homes and move to the world around us as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.